If you have your Bibles, please open them up to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Father in heaven, this is your word. We pray that you will open it to us and open us up to your word, that we may taste and see that you are good, that we may, oh God, taste your word and find it sweet as honeycomb and be nourished and fed by it today. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. This month, as a church, we are beginning a series on the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And Soli Deo Gloria, that's to the glory of God alone. And these five truths are rooted deeply in Scripture. They were recovered rather than discovered, rather than made up. They were recovered during the period of the Reformation, which is why we often call them the five solas of the Reformation. And they were, it was during, actually, the month of October, October 31st, where Martin Luther took his 95 theses and early in the morning nailed them to the Wittenberg chapel door. And those theses were there meant to be open for debate. He wanted to debate what was going on and these had with them elements of these five solas. And it wasn't just Luther alone, but all the reformers who began to sense the importance of these things. And these five truths, these five solas are absolutely still critical for us today. They are revolutionary. We we have to see that. We have to see that these are absolutely revolutionary. They were revolutionary in the day of Martin Luther, and they are revolutionary today. Because it it is not that they are, it's not that scripture and grace and Christ and faith and to the glory of God alone, to the glory of God, that none of those ideas are revolutionary. Any church you go to will still talk about scripture and faith and Christ and, and God's glory. They will, they will talk about these things. But what is offensive, what is revolutionary, is when you add that word alone. That is what upset the apple cart, so to speak. That's what caused all sorts of problems in the 1500s and 1600s. That's what's still upsetting the world today. They're they're fine if we talk about Christ. It's when we talk about Christ alone. Now that's offensive. But what others see as offensive, we see as good news, the best of news. Now, Paul will say this in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly, that is, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so we begin this series first. While we could begin normally, often, uh, when the, this series is looked at, Scripture is the first one, we're going to begin with grace There's a number of reasons for that, but because we are this day celebrating the Lord's table, it felt appropriate for us to begin by looking at the grace of God alone. And the roots of this understanding, this critical truth, go way back in time. Not just in the pages of scripture, which we will look at in just a moment, but even before that. In the first few centuries of 
after Christ came and after the apostles had passed away, the early church, early Christians were wrestling with several truths. They were, they were wrestling preeminently with the nature of God, that he is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. They were wrestling with the nature of Christ, that he was truly God and truly man. They were wrestling with the truth that the Spirit is not just some impersonal force, but he is a person at work right now, equally and co-equal with the Father and the Son. They were wrestling with these things. But in, in wrestling with these absolutely critical truths, the understanding of grace alone as the means by which we are saved began to be, over time, increasingly assumed rather than made explicit. We can still see in in early sermons and in early messages and in early works, we can read those early Christians and they will talk about the need for grace. Even some of them, the grace alone and how we rely on God's grace But it was in the late 4th century, early 5th century, a man by the name of Augustine who really began to talk about this at length in a time in which it really wasn't mentioned. And he argued that the way that we come to God is through grace alone. He he began to see the necessity of God's grace and how it was essential and how it was the only means by which any of us could approach a holy God. Well, as... Any doctrine rightly set forth is this one was soon contended and there was a a Augustine from North Africa, but a a British monk by the name of Pelagius soon got a hold of his writings and he began to contend with Augustine. And he began to argue that, no, in fact, we have the ability in and of ourselves to come to God. Christ was a great example for us. And if we will simply follow in his example, then we can earn, we can merit God's favor. We will have God's own righteousness if we will simply obey and follow in the example that Christ has set forward for us. Augustine argued vehemently against this and they they went back and forth and and eventually the the Roman Catholic Church of that time sided with Augustine, seeing that he was right. But it didn't take long that though they had officially sided with Augustine, that they practically began to follow in the footsteps of Pelagius. And over time, they would add element after element after element of what was required for us to be accepted by God. Certainly grace, but that grace they taught eventually was only able to be experienced through the Roman Catholic Church as we followed in their precepts, as we obeyed and and, and accomplished and worked through the sacraments and, and experienced those for ourselves. If we did this and if we experienced this, these things, and if we followed in the right path, then we would experience God's grace. Certainly we are saved by grace, they would say. But it was Martin Luther in 1517, struck by the immense dependence that we have on the Lord and on his grace, that he began to argue that it was not just grace, it was grace alone. And the situation there, you, you may be familiar with. The Roman Catholic Church at that time was in desperate need of money. And so to, to raise money, the Pope uh, 
sent forth, the Roman Catholic Church sent forth uh, preachers, they commissioned preachers to go out and to raise funds. And the way those funds were to be raised was by selling indulgences, which were basically a a get-out-of-jail-free card. And these could be purchased not only for yourself, but for your dead loved ones or your living loved ones. And so preachers began to go throughout Europe and to preach indulgences. And if you were to pay money, you could then have an indulgence. One German uh, preacher who was sold out, who was sent out, Johann Tetzel, sold indulgences, and he was a brilliant marketer. And he figured out a, a jingle, a little song that he could sing that would be memorable. And so it went something like this. Every time a gold in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs. He could have given some great marketing vice today. And as a result, the floodgates opened and people bought indulgences. But Luther opposed him. And this would set Luther up against the Roman Catholic Church, and Martin Luther would soon be condemned strongly. But he would go on preaching and teaching and writing, and at times debating with other Roman Catholic theologians and leaders, sometimes in person, sometimes in writing. But there was one particular writer, one particular New Testament scholar, who was brilliant and everyone esteemed. You might know his name. His name was Erasmus. He was the one who, in seeing that the the Latin Vulgate, the New Testament of the Roman Catholic Church, he saw that there were some important, there were some critical errors in the translation of the Vulgate. And so what he did is he produced a Greek New Testament. And he was highly respected as a New Testament scholar, highly respected as a theologian. And so he was pressed by the Roman Catholic Church to publicly disagree with Martin Luther. And so in 1524, he writes a book on the freedom of the will and how we have it within ourselves to come to God on our own by the freedom of our own will, by what we have within us. And Luther, the very next year in 1525, wrote what many consider to be his most important work, entitled The Bondage of the World. And there he works line by line by line to dismantle the arguments of Erasmus using scripture. But Luther at the end does something unusual. At the end of this glorious and grand debate, Luther praises Erasmus, which is not something we are tend we we tend to see these days. And he says this about Erasmus. He says, I praise and commend you highly for this also, that unlike all the rest, that is all those others that have written against him or debated him, he says, Unlike all the rest, you alone have attacked the real issue, the essence of the matter in dispute, and have not wearied me with irrelevancies like the the papacy and purgatory and indulgences and such trifles. Those are massive issues, and he just dismisses them. They are trifles. He says this, You and you alone have seen the question on which everything hinges and have aimed at the vital spot. 
for which I sincerely thank you. Since I am only too glad to give as much attention to this subject as time and leisure permit. The issue that was at stake here. The issue that Erasmus and Luther were ultimately arguing about. Was whether we are able in and of ourselves to smuggle anything in to the work of salvation. Some of you may be going into a a stadium or into a theater or somewhere where there's the sign on the door that says, no outside food or drink allowed. And you look in a book bag and you've got a bottle of water there or you've brought some snacks for the kids, moms or something like that. And, And you see that and you just, well, let's just stuff it at the bottom and no one will know. You're smuggling the food in and some... That is what the Roman Catholic Church, and not just the Roman Catholic Church, but that is what we as Christians are in danger of doing every generation. Smuggling in some righteousness or merit on our own. That we are accepted before God on something other than on the foundation of his grace. The question is whether we contribute anything to our salvation And we can trace this issue, not just from Augustine, but even before that, but down to our day. This is not a problem for people out there. This is a problem for us. So as we meditate on Romans 5, it is this idea of grace that is is the foundation of this passage. We're going to look at verses 6 to 11. And as we read through it, um, you will notice that grace isn't mentioned once in these verses. And yet, it is mentioned multiple times in, the, in chapter 5 of Romans alone. It is once in 6-2, I'm sorry, once in verse 2 of chapter 5, and then four or five times after this. It is, what it seems to be happening here is Paul is talking about grace. And in verse 2, he talks about rejoicing in this grace in which we now stand. And now in verse 6-11, to 11, he is going to exalt in this grace. He's going to... Be in awe of this grace. He, he wants to unpack it so that we all get to gaze at it and rejoice and revel in it together. And so we see in Romans 5, verses 6 to 11, Paul writes this. For when we were still without strength, in due time, or at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely... For a righteous man will one die. Yet, perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath, that's God's wrath, through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. This text, verses 6 to 11, gives us four descriptions of 
of us. And they're not very flattering descriptions. But four words that, that unpack, that, that explain for us the ugly necessity of grace. And you can see them beginning in verse 6. We are told for when we were still, and the New King James translates that word as without strength. The ESV will say, while we were still weak. The NIV puts it this way, while we were still powerless. This isn't talking about physical weakness. Paul is describing our moral weakness. Our moral powerlessness. Our spiritual inability. Our spiritual helplessness to respond to God positively on our own. Or contribute anything to to our standing with God. Here the picture is that we are going to die under the judgment of God and we are powerless, helpless. He goes on, there's there's a second word there in verse 6. For when we were still without strength, weak, powerless, helpless, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time Christ died for the ungodly, we might say for the godless. Instead of loving God with all of our being, John Stott says, we have rebelled against him. So that now in our natural condition, we appear to God outside of Christ. We appear to him as vile and unworthy. We are godless. Not only are we powerless to save ourselves from God's judgment. Here we see as 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 those who are ungodly, as those who are godless, we deserve God's judgment. That's the emphasis here. If one is powerlessness, here is our just desert. We are godless on our own. Children, young people, we love you. One thing you need to be gripped by right now is is that you, in the eyes of God, outside of Christ, if you have not trusted in Christ... You are godless, ungodly. Adult, that is who we are. We are godless, we are ungodly, we deserve God's judgment. But there is another word there in verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners... Instead of following the way God demands, we have gone our own way. We are like Isaiah 53, verse 6. We are like those sheep who have gone astray, turning each to his own way. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells us that the standard that we must meet is God's perfection. And we have fallen short of that in every way. We have missed the mark from the beginning. Notice it doesn't say that we have sinned. Although that is true. It says that we are sinners. That is a fundamental part of our identity as human beings after the fall of Adam and Eve into sin is that we, before God, on our own, are sinners. We are not sinners because we have sinned. R.C. Sproul has said, rather, we, we sin because we are 
sinners. We have rebelled against a holy God. And because of that, it goes into that fourth word in verse 10. For if when we were enemies, enemies, not only are we helpless before God, not only are we godless in the eyes of God, not only are we sinners in the sight of God, we are hostile to God and he is hostile to us. We are enemies. You, you may think that that's not me. I have no hostility to God. I've always been a good person. I've always believed that God exists. I've tried to obey him. But the reality is, on our own, outside of Christ, we, we want our own way. And when push comes to shove, we will turn from God's way every time. And not only are we hostile to God, but the Lord is hostile to us. We are his enemies. This is a theme through the book of Revelation. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. But in accordance with your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render each one of us according to our deeds. And here in verse 9... We are told that we are saved from wrath. Whose wrath is that? It is God's wrath. I I realize it is hard for us in our day to have an idea of God where wrath is a part of it. But this this is what God has revealed of himself. That against all sin... And against all sinners, God has wrath. We are outside of Christ, his enemies. We are not good people in Christ, and God is not okay with us. These four words act as flares. If you were to stand over a, 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 a deep pit in the ground and want to find out how deep it goes, you might drop a flare in to see what's at the bottom, to see what it looks like on the way down. And these four words give us just small little hints of the ugliness that lies within. Of the way we look to the Lord. What this passage helps us to see is that our, our sin isn't mere mistakes. It's not mere accidents. It is showing our real character. We are helpless before God. We are godless before God. We are sinners and we are his enemies. And all of that sets us up for the message that Paul wants us to see here. He wants us to see and to savor the grace of God, but unless we see what we are shown grace from, we will never appreciate what we are shown grace to. This is the, ba- this is the, the, the black backdrop 
of the gospel, the, ba- the black backdrop of our sinfulness upon which the gem of the gospel is placed. And what we see here is that God has mercifully, graciously done a work in us and for us. Look with me back at verse 6. For when we were still helpless, still without strength, still weak, still powerless. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. In due time, or at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What this tells us is that God secured us at the perfect time. Christ's work on the cross wasn't a a plan B. It was the perfect time at the right time. It was all according to God's eternal plan. The incarnation and the death of Jesus is a part of God's eternal plan to show each of us grace. And it was planned out for us even while we were still without strength, still helpless. What we cannot do on our own, God begins to do. God shows Grace at the perfect time. And he secures us by his grace and his astounding love. Look with me at verse 7 to 8. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, you and I, we, we, we might die for someone who we loved, for someone who we cared about, for someone who was good. But if there is someone that is described with these four words, we would not. And Paul is identifying that, how astounding this love is, even that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were getting our lives back on track. Not while we were getting things in order. God shows us grace irrespective of how much we could never deserve it. And that is what makes God's grace so astounding. It comes to us not when we are good. Not when we have decided to follow him, not when, not when we are therefore working, it, it comes to us long before that. God secures grace for us by his astounding love and it is secured by God at an unfathomable cost. At every turn in this passage, we are informed of just how unworthy we are of the grace of God. We cannot earn it, we don't deserve it, and yet God secures it. He secures it for us who are powerless, for us who are godless, for us who are sinners, for us who are his enemies. He secures it at the cost of his own son. You see in verse six, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And again, in verse 8, we are told that, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ 
died for us. Both times you see that word for in that passage. It is the, it is the Greek word huper. It, it pictures for us the substitutionary work of Jesus, that he is dying in our place. He is paying the cost that we deserve. God is securing this grace at his own cost. And then in verses 9 to 10, we read this. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And why is this all important? And we tend to see grace as as mere favor from God, and it, it is God's favor. But sometimes when we just put it that way, we can, without meaning to, we can begin God's begin to, to view God's grace as if it was merely a sentiment, as merely of, as if it's kindness, like it's a grandfather or a grandmother when the grandkids misbehave, it's okay, here's some candy, go back home to mom and dad. We can overlook that because we're not ultimately responsible for it. But that's not God's grace. That's not the picture here. Grace is bloody. It's secured by blood, but it is not our blood. It is secured by the blood of Christ. One theologian Carl Truman helpfully defines it this way. He says, sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God, and biblical grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response. Grace is something God had. It is, it is the act of God. It is a verb, something God did on our, uh, on our part for us. It is the unexplainable action of God to redeem and show mind-blowing favor to sinners who through their own rejection of him and rebellion against him and his role deserve nothing from him. And this is the only way we can relate to God. We come to him as helpless, as godless, as sinners, as enemies. And this is the only way we come. The only ones whom God saves are those who he describes in this way. This is what we see in Luke 18. We talked about this last uh, on Friday night at Center Shot. We unpacked this story that Christ tells, this parable of a Pharisee and a tax collector who both go into the temple both going to pray and the tax collector go I'm sorry the Pharisee goes where everyone will see him this Pharisee who is smug in his righteousness believing that he is good and he prays looks at this tax collector looks at everyone around him and he prays oh God thank you that I am not like other men extortioners adulterers sinners and especially like that tax collector over there thank you I'm not like him I tithe to you I do all that you command the, he, he's like giving his resume to the Lord in prayer. And he expects that God accepts him for that. Meanwhile, 
the tax collector, this, this one who would have been considered the worst person in all of Israel, he goes to God and he doesn't even look up and he, we're told he, he goes afar off. He wants to be in a place where no one is going to see him. And he begins to pray silently, beating his chest. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus tells us that it is not the Pharisee, the one who has everything together. It is not the righteous man. It is the tax collector who went to his house justified, declared righteous in the sight of God. We come to God and we come to him on and by his grace and grace alone. There is nothing that you can do. There is nothing that you have done. There is nothing about you, not your family history, not your religious effort, nothing that approves us to God. Nothing that we bring to the table, that we contribute to our salvation. It is not that God does most of it and we, we must add this little bit at the end to complete the final work. No, it is, it is by grace and grace alone, which is exactly what Jesus tells us. That he did not come for the righteous, but to, make, to, bring, to call sinners to repentance. This is what motivated God in eternity past to save sinners. We are told again and again, whether we look in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 7, or whether we look in Ephesians 1, or in Romans 9, or many other places, we see that in eternity past, God calls and he chooses to redeem sinners on the basis of grace and nothing but grace. Why does God give us spiritual life? Ephesians 2 makes it clear, it is by grace you are saved. Even our faith and repentance are gifts from God. Philippians 1.30 tells us that it has been granted to us not only that we should believe in Christ, but that we should suffer for his name. Just as suffering is a gift and a gracious gift of God, so is our faith. And in 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says that he, he worked harder than all the other apostles which seems on the face of it the biggest brag statement ever, doesn't it? And then he goes up and he follows it with this, yet it was not I, it was the grace of God in me. We can approach God with confidence, we can pray, we gather before him, not because there is something about us that is lovable and special, it's not because when God was creating you, he, was, he walked into his Build-A-Bear of creation and thought, hmm, I want to give this person an extra bit of heart. I want to make them extra cuddly, give them the, the nice, soft fur. Hopefully, not many of us have too much fur. God does not love us because we are lovable. He loves us because he loves us. He loves us because he loves us because he loves us because he is gracious. And this is why in future glory, when we have been given, those who have trusted in Christ alone, when we have been given rewards for what we have done in this life, you know what we do with those rewards? 
the scriptures tell us that we will throw them back at the feet of Jesus. Because ultimately what we will see is that anything we have accomplished is a result of God's gracious working in us. Even as we operate and work, it is God working behind. We come to God by grace and grace alone. Friend, if you were to stand before God this afternoon, on what basis would he accept you? Is it because your, your family has been Christian for a long time, faithful to some church for a long time? Kids, is it because your parents are Christians, because you come to church regularly? Is it because you are particularly good at, at religious works? You, you read your Bible, you try to pray regularly. You are a decent person, at least not as bad as some other people. That is the very standard by which the Pharisee thought that he was accepted. Friend, we are accepted by grace and grace alone through the work of Christ who dies in the place of sinners. Trust in him. Anchor your life in him. Find joy in him. It was... These truths, seeing both the stark necessity for God's grace and the work of God's bloody grace that struck the heart of John Newton. That, that young man who from a young boy, he was enlisted in the help of uh, the Navy, the British Navy, and, and soon joined the slaving trade. And even though the, the slaving trade, it drew the worst kinds of people generally, John Newton became even remarkable amongst those people. That is, he was remarkably bad, even amongst the slave traders. He himself would go on to captain a slave trade vessel, invest heavily in the slave trade itself. And then it was as he came to faith in Jesus Christ, he began to see all his life how he had worked for that which was not just not, just not good, it was evil itself. And he began to see his desperate need for the amazing grace of God And in celebrating that grace, he would write the hymn. And it is a tragedy that that hymn has become most commonly associated with funerals these days. It was in no wise meant to be associated with funerals. It was a celebration of all that God had done. Not only for John Newton, but for each and every one of us. We celebrate what God had done in Christ Jesus. Though we were helpless, though we were powerless to save ourselves, God saves us. Though we were godless and ungodly, though we were sinners, Christ died for us. And though we were enemies to God, we have been, by his grace, reconciled to him through the blood of Christ Jesus. 
At every moment, it is grace upon grace upon grace. You and I live now only because of the grace of God. And we will in all eternity see our sin so much clearer and it will become a stepping stool for us to enjoy the grace of God all the more richly. So as the musicians come to lead us in singing Amazing Grace, my hope is as you would sing that, your heart would respond with joy in the grace of God for you. For his grace is amazing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are humbled, O God, when we read of the diagnosis that from which you saved us. Here we saw our hearts unfolded before Christ. Here we see what you save us from. Oh God, we pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude and grace that we may live out in faith and enjoy the grace that you have shown us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.